Hi, I know most of you already, but I'm Krista. Like Alex said, I used to be one of the youth program's co-directors. We were actually the first two to be co-directors at Louisiana Right to Life. Beforehand, it was always one person, so that we were the first two to like have to learn how to work as a team in this in the youth programs department. Since leaving Louisiana Right to Life, I've had like 15 <laughs> jobs. I'm currently running a, a Newman Center or a Catholic Student Center here in Los Angeles where I'm in my office right now. I had a lot of adventures like Alex said and the topics that we're going to be discussing today which is mostly, mostly leadership but a little bit of communications. What I'm going to be sharing today is from my, from my education for sure because my first degree is in public relations. My second degree is in psychology. Everything that I've learned from my time at Louisiana Right to Life to now has been really from the adventures of my many, many jobs. So I've been in nonprofit, I've been in the church, and I'm currently working for the church. I worked for a waiter, so a little bit of corporate world. I was also in high school education. I was a teacher before COVID, and you know, I was like, doing other things too, little odd jobs, had a praise and worship band. Uh, I was a barista. <laughs> I, what is the other thing I was going to say? Did I say gymnastics coach already? Okay. So I did a bunch of little jobs, um, between 2019 and now, and I will say like a lot of what I learned about leadership has been in those little odd jobs that I've had since leaving Louisiana right to life. So I want to share one story of servant leadership first, before I kind of dive into the topic. I just want to illustrate it for you, at least for me, in the time of COVID, I think COVID is such an interesting time because, you know, you really saw um, not only individuals for who they were, but you saw companies and so many companies went under because of COVID because they weren't able to adapt and they weren't able to work together as a team. And some of my favorite restaurants died, like Randall's in Lafayette. I did hear their reopening, though, is one of the places that I used to go Cajun dancing back home. I didn't get to say goodbye. Like the week they closed, they were like, we're closing in three days. And I was like, no, I'm coming in four days. It was really sad to see um, some of these, especially great restaurants from my hometown closed because of COVID. But some of the greatest leadership I ever saw was during COVID as well. Like I said, one of the, my jobs was working as a gymnastics coach. And it was at this little place in Broussard, Louisiana of all places, right down the road from where I used to live from my house. And like many companies and small businesses, a lot of people were taking out the PPP loan, right, so that they can keep their employees. And at that time, uh, the two, the head coaches and the, the um, owners of this, of this gym, Mandy and Eric, I remember that they they decided not to take any money from that PPP loan, and they wanted us to still remain at the amount that we were making per hour. And they just believed so much in their gym. Um, which, you know, it's not like a nonprofit like Louisiana Right to Life or the Newman Center, but they believed so much in the quality of their gymnastics and especially like in a competitive field like gymnastics that to have like a positive environment for for young children and athletes to um, to grow and flourish as in their sport. So they believed so much in their gym that they didn't take they didn't take pay during that time so that we could. Again, these are owners of a gym and they had been operating for a number of years and they were continuing to grow. And so COVID was a test, I feel, for that company, for that business. I feel they're continuing to succeed because of what they did during the time of COVID. When I think of servant leadership, you know, I could make this a religious talk because I work for a Newman Center and I'm sure most of you probably have 
some religious background because it's Louisiana. I, I mean, I don't for sure know, but I think it's safe to assume that. Um, I could easily say, you know, the higher you go, the lower you go and like look at the leadership of Jesus or Mary. But I'm going to say the higher you go, the lower you go. Look at the, the leaders of this business, the owners of this business. They chose they chose us, their employees, before themselves. And they chose their, their business. They were co-owners. And they chose, you know, to continue going and to adapt. And we were doing, like, gymnastics lessons over Zoom, which is difficult to do because it's a sport. But, yeah, they were the, at the highest form of leadership. And they, they took the lowest place for us so that we could you know, still make money during that time. So I thought that was my greatest visualizing. And when I think of servant leadership, I really think of Mandy and Eric and what they did for us coaches at, at this little gym in Broussard. Another thing that I think of servant leadership, and like, I'm gonna tell you in a second why we're talking about servant leadership. I've been really thinking about the, the virtue of being meek. And I, that's not something that I understand because I feel like I'm, I'm not like a meek lamb person. I'm like a tractor bulldozer person who is like, I'm scary to walk through doorways with. Um, and I mean that like literally and metaphorically. Um, so meek is not something that I ever would have described myself as until maybe now, because I think I have a better definition of it now. One of my, one of my priests told me, no, meek is not necessarily just being like a lamb it's like being a lion who knows how to hold back their roar and that's something that I, I really resonated with me there's times where I have to learn how to hold my tongue especially running a Newman Center there's um, certainly some type of politics where two or three are gathered in Jesus name there are what politics been times <laughs> there are times where I have to trust higher-ups in the church and the authority and people who have been at this parish longer for instance and one of my priests here told me like don't don't burn bridges too quickly like be willing to bite your tongue right now and then when you have when you have the chance to prove yourself or prove the Newman Center um, you'll have that opportunity later but don't don't burn the bridge now and that that's the this quality of meekness that I see in servant leadership and um, one of the fathers here like I said who told me that like he ran in like something like a Newman Center 10 years ago or so and he was telling me that it, it was very difficult for him because he's opinionated, he's got a, he's strong-willed, um, similar, similar to me, and I think that's why he, he's reminding me to temper myself, even though, I mean, I'm an activist, I care about justice, and like I want things to be just and right. He's reminding me, like, when the time comes, it'll, it'll be the time. And that's been a, a hard lesson for me, especially maybe in a place like Los Angeles, but we can talk about that later. So, to kind of go into the next point, I want to talk about humble determination. This is a phrase that I got from from this book, Radical Candor, Humble Determination. I'm going to call that the virtue, okay? And the opposite of virtue is vice, and it's not just one vice, it's two vices. It's a continuum. This is Aristotelian philosophy, so there's a vice of excess and a vice of deficiency. So if humble determination is a quality of servant leadership, a vice of excess, can anyone guess what a vice of excess would be? There'd be too much humble determination, what it, what, or even just determination. If you have too much of that, what would that look like as a vice? Too much determination. I said like aggressive ambition. Aggressive ambition, I like that. I was, I was gonna call it proud autocrat. Aggressive is a good word for it, being too proud. A, a mentality of I know best 
like it's good to have determination but when you when you get to a point where you're you want to like li basically work alone you'd rather work alone and, and be proud be the only one to making decisions when I was a teacher, whenever I went to a Catholic high school and I was the campus minister, they called me dictator for the first full month that I was there. And uh, it was definitely because I came in kicking and screaming and like, okay, let's go. We're gonna, yeah, I had this mentality that I knew best and they, they certainly taught me that I didn't know best, but that is a vice of excess. So again, humble determination, vice of excess, proud, autocratic. Vice of deficiency, not enough determination. What do you think that looks like? What would you call that? Uh, laziness. Unproductive, laziness. I want to call it spineless reservation. I I really like uh, Hamilton. Spineless reservation. <laughs> spineless reservation. So it's it's kind of this mentality that you know you so go with the flow that you have no opinions, right? I love the musical Hamilton. Okay, what does Hamilton say, Burr? If you stand for nothing, Burr, what do you fall for? Um, so having no, have, being spineless and like acquiescing to everything, that's the other kind of vice. If the true heart of servant leadership is humble determination, then both of these other opposites are problematic, right? And, and they won't work for a team. Sorry, did I interrupt someone? Yeah, sorry. It, like, it froze for some, for some reason. Okay. You said humble determination first time and then it, and then Okay, I was just gonna say humble determination, if that's the virtue that we're going for, then both of these extremes on either side are gonna be problematic, especially for a team working together. So I'm giving all these kind of individual things for, for you to, to discuss and think about as an individual. Um, these are my last two points about servant leadership before I talk about it as a collective, as a group that, uh, you which I love that is growing by the way, because before it was just me and Alex, the fact that this is a growing team is beautiful and needed. So last two things, servant leadership, for you to think on, about and chew on, culture of honor, having a culture of honor. When I worked at Waiter, I had a boss who met with me every two weeks, and at the end of our maybe 30 minute meeting, because we met so frequently, she asked, what do you need and how can I help? What do you need and how can I help? Now, I was editing menus. It wasn't like high stakes, okay? but. You know, if I was like, hey, I'm really struggling with Mediterranean menus, then she would get she would partner me with someone on a Mediterranean menu that I wasn't, you know, familiar with the language of. And she would she would help me with this very specific thing. And because I asked very specifically, she was able to help me very specifically. But it was because she had a culture of honor and there was a level of trust that we had between one another that I could share what my weaknesses were, but that she could point to and help me hone in my skill set for that like i said for that job it was menus the last point servant leadership is being replaceable if any ministry or any program or anything hinges on one person or two people or a small group of people it will fail it cannot hinge on you you need to be replaceable and that is the heart of servant leadership because it's not about you it's not about you it's about having a shared vision so let's Let's go into, these are again, individual points that I want you to think about. Let's talk about it in the form of a collective, which this is what it is. This is what you are. You are a group of people working together. What does servant leadership in action look like? Number one, oh, sorry, Father. I'm giving a talk right now. I'll come later. <laughs> that was my boss. Bye, Father. Okay. <laughs> what does servant leadership in action look like? Okay, number one. the. The best part about servant leadership is that you model it. If you can if you can perfect it within your group of people, you model it for your students. 
because this is the context that you're in. You're serving college and high school students. You need to model what it means to be a leader and what it means to collaborate and work together despite your differences, despite your opinions. Alex and I were blessed because we're very similar. We're very similar and we and there were only two of us. So it's a lot easier to work with just one person than it is to work with two or three more people. There's a like a level of interpersonal communication that it was much easier for Alex and I to have. I've told Ben many times, you are so lucky that we are who we are because the first time we met, we were in DC together for a week. That could have been really bad. That could have been yeah. really, really yeah. bad. Um, <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't, we got lucky. He hired two people with very similar hearts and who are recovering from being the oldest daughters. <laughs> the, the number one point that I think is needed is that you have, you model, you model what the student, what you want to instill in the students, you have to model yourselves. You have to be a model of. Okay, two, servant leadership in action means having a shared vision, a shared vision. So what are you acquiescing to? What are you being subservient to? Not to Alex, not to each other, but to a mission. And you need to have that mission in mind. Maybe it's not even something that y'all have uh, like really explicitly discussed. And, and it's okay too if vision changes because like the needs of 2016 youth programs time were probably very different than 2023 youth programs. So what Alex and I were dealing with um, at that time is probably very different. I mean, especially after the Love Life campaign and the Amendment One, I know things have changed for Louisiana and for youth programs and the discussions and the way people are talking about things. I'm sure COVID has had an impact on the way youth programs are running, um, young adult groups are running, clubs, how clubs are operating. I'm sure all of that has been different just because of COVID. Um, so it's okay if vision changes, but it has to be shared. You have to share the vision together. And maybe this is something you talk about once a year. Maybe this is something you talk about every two years. Maybe it's something you talk about when you get a new youth programs co-director. You determine that, but you have to have a shared vision and a shared view. The best leaders, which that's what you are, you are leaders. And I think you already know that but the best leaders are not so so concerned with being right as as to getting to the right answer and which means sometimes being wrong i really think data and feedback is really important data and feedback is very important i know they do some uh or at least when alex and i were there we were doing them at after every single camp to take in a, maybe like even having select students that you that you have trust with um which you have to have have to build and nurture when you have those relationships with some of those select students for us the Haley Guths the Joseph Zeranks of, of our time when we have that level of trust with them they're able to tell us what fell short because they share in the vision too the students so let them let them one example of shared vision that I really enjoy and I think everyone probably in uh, any kind of political job enjoys is Scalia and uh, RBG right I saw an interview where Scalia, they were getting interviewed together and he said, what's not to like about her? I mean, except her views of the law, of course. And so they, they disagreed so heavily on, on, I mean, the interpretation of the constitution or whatever, but ultimately they had a shared vision for the good of the country. And I think that's why they were able to have such a, such a friendship. And I think there's something really beautiful about that, that you can have a shared vision with someone that you disagree entirely with. Again, I think that's what made them such profound leaders in this country that's that's something that we can look to and try to emulate I kind of reference it in this last one shared vision but the the next one is like nurturing 
your relationships and fostering appreciation in one another. So when you can see the dignity and the people that you serve with, even when you disagree with them, there is something, there is fruit, there is fruit from that. There's fruit from that because even if you, you know, I work in ministry in Los Angeles. I work in Catholic ministry in Los Angeles. You can probably imagine how many shades of Catholic there are in a city like Los Angeles. And there are people who I, who I way, way disagree with, who, you know, do things that I think are low key, very problematic. There's liturgical abuse left and right. I have had to let go a little bit of not who I am, not what I believe, that there are people in ministry that we're not gonna to be totally 100% on the same page, but I'm still gonna do ministry with you because at least we're doing ministry together, you know? Like there's something that we can share. You know, I think there's a lot of uh, conversion that can happen in relationship and in friendship. And that comes from fostering an appreciation for even people who are different than you. It's certainly been a culture shock and hard for me here in LA, but there's a gift of being universal. There's a gift to the pro-life message, not only being for religious and Catholics, but for non-believers and, and of other faiths, of course. That has to be nurtured though, and that's how you build trust, and that's what servant leadership looks like in action, is that if you're each building trust with different communities that you're a part of, and guess what? If you're a part of different communities, then the message is getting further. It's spreading more. So the more diverse of the people at the table, and I'm not talking about just race or gender or all those kinds of things, just the more diverse and even the way that you like wanna teach a certain thing, then you're bringing more to the table by being diverse and you're inviting more people to the table, which is, is so necessary in bringing like this universal message. So uh, celebrate your differences, celebrate um, the ways that you disagree because the last thing that servant leadership in action and among the, the group of you, what it does is it activates. It makes people wanna join. It makes people stand up. It makes people more likely to speak up, more likely to speak out against abortion. It's gonna help not just y'all, it's gonna help this mission, again, that you are subservient to, that you're agreeing to be subservient to. Even if it takes a long time to get to that place of agreement, it activates other people to be a part of it when you diversify and, and bring people of all different strengths. So so first point, servant leadership for you as an individual is like, do you land on one of those other vices um, or is humble determination something that you're able to embody? Servant leadership in action, like really taking into account like what it would look like for every single person on the team to be a servant leader and how what the good effect that would be, not just for you as individuals, as a group, but for, for the mission and perpetuating it, for perpetuating the mission. Couple of practical tips, and this is something that I think, you know, Alex can take afterwards and hopefully continue this conversation. I don't wanna just be here for one talk and then like, that's it. Like, I think this is something that can be continued. There's two books that I recommend. One is called Difficult Conversations and the other one is called Radical Candor. So I'm gonna give a couple of tips from both of them. Uh, difficult Conversations, let's, let's go with that one first. This is a book that when I worked at Waiter, we would week by week read out of this book and there was like scripts in it. So we'd read it and then we'd basically dissect the conversations. What parts of it were good, what parts of it fell short, and we did that together as a team because what I what I did at Waiter was uh, edited 
And so because we were the editors, we were the ones that came in and like with the red ink. Those are difficult conversations to have. What's that? I, I would not want that job. <laughs> <laughs> So we were, we were learning how to correct people all the time, basically. So that's, yeah, a difficult job. But here's, here's some things that I learned from my time at Waiter and from the book, Difficult Conversations. Number one, remembering the culture of honor, right? You honor one another for being subservient to the mission and for that person sometimes having a different gift than you that they're bringing to the table that maybe you don't even understand, but hopefully you can honor the gift in that person and have enough space to even listen to what they're saying without bias. Um, that's hard. I know that's really hard. Um, and like even from basic persuasion training, right? You say it back, clarify. What I'm hearing from you is X, Y, Z. Is that correct? When you're having those difficult conversations, sometimes it's better to take the back seat and let other people drive. I know like I've had difficult conversations with former roommates like Jacob and I think he knows my little method now usually it's you go first why don't you tell me what you think is happening and like let it all out spill it spill it spill it I, I want you to say everything that you want to say and I hear you that's that's what happened that's what you it felt like this to you and when I did that you felt like that so being able to be the person who goes last right so when, when that would happen, I would let them say everything they needed to say. And then, you know, once they felt heard, um, which is very important, they felt heard, their voice was heard. Then I say, hey, can I, can I tell the truth now? Like there were some misconceptions here. Um, and can I say what was true? So it's true that I did this and I was wrong and I apologize. And this is, this is where I was coming from with that. And so when you can take the back seat, let other people drive, be willing to switch lanes if we're going to continue with the car analogy here. Sometimes you, you're you not the one in charge. You're not the one in the driver's seat. Sometimes you're one, the one just taken in the view. And it, it, it takes a, well, yeah, like a servant, a true servant leader to be able to do that first sometimes. Like I said earlier, like using data and feedback is really important. I'm sure y'all are still taking uh, those surveys at the end of each camp, for instance. Sometimes it, the difficult conversation might be with, with Alex. So Alex is someone that you report to, I'm sure. True servant leadership is even being able to go to Alex and say, hey, Alex, this didn't work. Not just being the recipient of data and feedback, but being the one to give it in a constructive and useful way. Because if you're just like, you know, spouting out truth without love, it's not gonna be helpful, it's not gonna be good. So Alex, actually, if you want, you could put that little arrow thing that I sent you. Could you put that on a board or something? Or you could just text it to everyone right now, that'd be fine. The last thing about difficult conversations I would say is, it's not about you. Sometimes it's not about you. You have to acquiesce to the shared vision that you have set. Hopefully you've communicated that in advance and you have to let go of what you believe uh, for the sake of the mission or for the sake of the team or, or the teenagers or the college students that you serve. And that's very difficult, much easier said than done. All right, so the last, this is my last point. I feel like I've been rambling for so long. I'm gonna try really hard to get through Radical Candor. This is an entire book. This little uh, axis here. So we have care personally up and down and challenge directly. So Radical Candor is the sweet spot that is the quadrant that you wanna be in. These are the mathiest terms I've ever said in the last 10 years. So let's just celebrate that for a second. 
All right, let's start with um, obnoxious aggression. So that's the one, the bottom right quadrant. Okay, what is obnoxious aggression? So it's basically being challenging without caring. It's being challenging without caring. So it's, it's criticism not to improve, but instead to humiliate or degrade. That's zero care, 100% challenge. Obnoxious aggression, not helpful. All right, let's go to the left, left of that. Manipulative insincerity. Okay, so that's, you don't have care personally for the person and you don't wanna challenge them. So this is, this is kind of vain. Whenever you're not willing to challenge people, when you're not willing to put people, kind of like raise them up, raise the stakes and say, hey, like you could be better than this. And in fact, I think this is uh, even most harmful when you win, okay? So when you do well and you don't criticize, you know, or give constructive criticism, give radical candor, that can be that can be problematic too because sometimes people are like well i care about the team so i don't want to give any negative feedback i don't want to make them feel bad that's problematic that's problematic because people even when you're on a winning team i'm sure some sports analysts are still looking at their wins and how did they win how can they replicate that or do that better in the future um, so manipulative insincerity is whenever a leader is too vain to actually care to challenge sometimes not all times okay sometimes being a leader is being willing to piss people off like you're it, the truth hurts sometimes like if you're if you're telling someone something about a weakness of theirs like for instance the one of the people that i work with is still in grad school there are times where he neglects his schoolwork, but then it affects his job and i have to i have to be the one to say like hey it worries me during finals week that you're neglecting your job. I love you. I know that school is important to you. And ultimately, you need to go finish that and go do your job that you're going to do when you finish your master's program. You need to get a grip of your, your time schedule. You need, to, you need to be better and you're not, you need to not pull all-nighters because it affects not just you, not just your school program, but this job and the people that you serve. So people deserve the best of you and that's not, that's not it. Manipulative insincerity is where you pretend to care, but you don't because you're not challenging people. Okay, next one, ruinous empathy, top left quadrant. This is when you care almost too much about being nice, about getting along. And it, uh, it's when you, you care a lot about people, but again, you're not challenging. So you care so much about being nice that you remove any element of criticism. It's kind of like the manipulative insincerity. Manipulative insincerity is more like you care about your image. All right, you care about how people perceive you. So it's more about vanity. Ruinous empathy is, uh, is actually more harmful to the people that you serve, like the people you collaborate with, or for Alex, like the people that uh, you guys who report to her. Consensus is not really always possible. So I think leadership, uh, like if, if we're shying away from ruinous empathy, leadership is sometimes Alex listening to all the things that all of you have to say about a program and then her making the decision about it. So not her trying to say, oh, but I want you to agree with them and them to agree with them. No, it's Alex being the leader and she has the decision-making power. And ultimately, hopefully everyone felt heard and everyone had a place to say what they had to say, but you don't get the decision-making power, Alex does. Ruinous empathy would be Alex trying to acquiesce to every single person in the room when she can't. She can't, she's the one that, she's the one that gets to choose. So what is radical candor? 
Radical candor is sometimes just non-judgmental commentary. So it's it's being truthful about things. It's it's saying you don't have to always build exactly the perfect relationship before you could get to a place of radical candor. Radical candor can be from a stranger on the street sometimes, but it is important to be very clear because clear is kind. So when you're clear, that is a very kind thing. And I think that's where those ruinous empathy, manipulative insincerity, like it feels like you're being mean if you give criticism. That's one side of the of things. But the other side of things is where you're, you're giving too much, too much truth um, and it's aggressive and it's you're trying to like basically stand alone and be a one man show when you can't. The program's not gonna last if you're the only one standing. It can't hinge on you. It can't be about you. So you have to learn how to communicate with one another with radical candor. Highly recommend this book. Highly recommend Difficult Conversations so that you can work together as a team under the guidance of Alex and be servant leaders and, and perpetuate the very worthy mission that you, that you share. Thank you. <laughs>